Hello, and welcome to the Taiwan History Podcast for Mosa Files. This is Season 3, Episode 33, Tales of Tokyo and Taiwan. Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Chi-Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files Tokyo, one of the greatest cities in the world now and for the last few hundred years. I love Tokyo. I lived there for a couple of years in my early 20s. Just a beautiful city, a mixture of ancient and new and uh, sights and sounds. And of course, Tokyo has had a huge impact on Taiwan, not just as the imperial capital during the colonial period of 1895 to 1945 when Japan ruled Taiwan. There's also been important cultural, economic, uh, educational influences throughout the centuries. There really are too many Tokyo-Taiwan connections to cover in a single Formosa Files episode, so we're just going to look at a few today. Take, for example, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, leader of the ROC for nearly 50 years, including during World War II when he resisted the Japanese invasion. Well, as a young adult, he lived in Japan for a few years. Yes, he studied at a military academy in Tokyo. He went there in 1907, the year he turned 20. Hmm, that's formative years. Yes, and formative experiences, that education, and also afterwards serving in the Japanese military for a year as an ordinary soldier in a field artillery unit in northern Japan. He would later recall that it taught him the importance of discipline. In a previous Formosa Files episode called Colonial Tourism, that would be season two, episode 35, we looked at tours to Taiwan from Tokyo, back when it was a colony, but then there was also sightseeing in the colonial period where people from Formosa were taken to Tokyo to impress them. And most interesting among these people were Aboriginal leaders of Taiwan, of Formosa. So they'd Took them to Tokyo and like, hey, look at this, you know, oh, mm-hmm. we are we are so civilized. Check out our awesome city. And uh, so they would get the idea that resistance is futile and, you know, uh, get with the benefits of civilization, that kind of thing. Yeah. And Tokyo was the premier destination for higher learning and the Taiwanese elite and the, the very smartest students went there. During uh, World War II, future president Lee Dong-hui studied in Japan, but That wasn't Tokyo, right? No, Kyoto Imperial University, I think. Right, Kyoto, Japan's old capital. Also a beautiful place that luckily was spared bombings during World War II, Mm. so you can still see. Oh, it's gorgeous. Oh, and at the same time, um, future political activist Dr. Peng Mingming was at Tokyo Imperial University. That's right, but he left Tokyo, escaping the prospect of forced conscription and also American bombing raids. So he headed off to the safety of... Uh, the safety of Nagasaki in 1945? Yeah, and he was witness to the atomic bomb dropped there. We also covered uh, the late Dr. Pung in two episodes. If you haven't heard those, his story is also amazing. Another notable figure who studied in Tokyo was the infamous Chen Yi. 
the man who received the Japanese surrender on Taiwan in 1945 and became the first ROC leader of Taiwan. Chen Yi is the man most responsible for the mass killings after 228 in 1947. Most people at least hold him mostly responsible. He spent years studying military matters in Japan. Yes, he even left the country with a Japanese wife, which must have been interesting during the war years. Yeah. But let's rewind to 1923, specifically September 1st, 1923. It's just before noon, 11.58 to be exact, and people are getting ready for lunch. Suddenly, a deafening roar fills the air. A violent tremor, lasting about 14 seconds, shakes the ground, ripping through the heart of Tokyo. Buildings sway and crumble. Fires ravage the city, engulfing everything in their path. So many of the buildings in Tokyo at that time were made of like wood and paper. And there was lunches being cooked with open flames at the time. So... Firestorms ravaged Tokyo and the not-too-far-away uh, city of Yokohama. The disaster left nearly 1.5 million people homeless and took about 110,000 lives, mostly from the fires. Yes, and part of the tragedy was that thousands of ethnic Koreans were murdered in the aftermath of the earthquake. There were over 100 separate fires in the city, and some of these were blamed on arson by Koreans. Which there's really no evidence for, right? This is unfounded rumors, but man, deadly rumors. Yeah, uh, Japan had annexed Korea back in 1910, and there were tensions. Luckily, Formosans were not made scapegoats, but there were repercussions for them. Many Japanese, including in the political elite, they blamed the earthquake... They said it was like divine punishment for, you know, decadence of modern urban Japan. All the foreign influences, selfishness, materialism, individualism, you know, we, we got away from our roots. And we can see this earthquake as something of a turning point. Following the quake, there were harder and harsher attitudes towards foreigners. Yes, there was an instant tightening of police measures throughout the empire. And the police rounded up lots of people they had on blacklists. There were trials, or maybe not trials, just executions. And yeah, Koreans in Tokyo, they suffered particularly harsh treatment. Mm. Taiwan at this time got a change of governor general, an unpopular hardliner called Uchida Kakichi. And his arrival set things up for a, a clash, you could say, because... His arrival coincided in Taiwan with a push for home rule by some Taiwanese or Formosans. Right. Home rule. They wanted representation in a local Taiwanese legislature and in the Japanese parliament. So in other words, to be able to vote for representation in government, this they would not get. And those pushing for it would face harassment. Even for most students in Japan who went home for the winter holidays in 1923, they also got into trouble. They, they brought news of the earthquake and the persecution of their Korean classmates. But before getting home, just arriving at the port of Geelong, 49 of the students, and they were all young men, I think, were seized, taken off to jail, and subjected to extended questioning, which, uh, yeah, sounds as ominous as it probably was. 
14 were then indicted on charges of subversive activity. These agitators, they had copies of a forbidden magazine um, found in their luggage. The students were sent to prison, but relatively light sentences, four months in jail, and they were allowed to resume their studies in Japan. Overall, Formosans in Tokyo now, following this earthquake, found themselves under a tighter leash. Those who were advocating for home rule, they found their family and friends in Taiwan were getting you know, visited and harassed. This harassment might be something as simple as delaying or censoring their mail or having family members called into the local police station for a chat. Or more seriously, the colonial authorities would mess with the permits and licenses related to business or even arrest you know, some of their family members on unspecified charges. But at this time, 1924, a major scandal was breaking, one involving this hardline governor general and also the number two position, the civil administrator and some other people. This was a scandal involving the Monopoly Bureau and narcotics. The governor general had to resign less than a year after being appointed. Yeah, these folks were found to have been shielding a large-scale illicit international narcotics operation. So they were uh, um, high-level drug dealers. Absolutely. The Monopoly Bureau in Taiwan, you know, it's under the, the, the colonial Japanese government's authority, had long collaborated with a Mitsui subsidiary and the Hoshi Pharmaceutical Company to import, process, and then export drugs illegally to China. Yeah, China and elsewhere. So there was an opium monopoly, a government bureau with limited sales to licensed addicts, supposedly closely regulated manufacture and sale. And Formosa's handling of the opium problem was seen as a, a model by many people throughout the world. Yeah, there's a spot down here in Kaohsiung where it's alleged that they used to take some of the opium addicts. It's like a temple place and they would let them... Uh, dry out there, but not in a bad way. You'd get your small amount to keep you from going insane. And yeah, there's mm -hmm. lots of stories about it being a, a, a kind of model. However, in the 1920s, there was also a lot of development and economic growth in Taiwan, the growth of the sugar industry, expansion of the railways and so on. And the forestry industry in Taiwan had a massive boost from the rebuilding of Tokyo. So all of that stuff that burnt down needed to be rebuilt and logs were pouring down from the hills by rail to the ports and up to Japan. Probably many of you who have lived here for a while have been on that Jai uh, small mm -hmm. train that was involved in that. The economic devastation of the Tokyo earthquake of 1923 had quite long-lasting economic repercussions. A few years later, there was a financial crisis, and the Bank of Taiwan played a major role in that. The Bank of Taiwan. We have a Bank of Taiwan today, but this is the Bank of Taiwan established in 1899, Japan's first colonial central bank for Japan's first colony. It was to act as the island's bank, but not just handling commercial business in Taiwan, it was to handle the spread of Japanese commercial interests into southern China and Southeast Asia, you know, places they had their eyes on for various reasons. 
Yes, big ambitions. And this Bank of Taiwan worked as a central bank and also a commercial bank with lots of lending. And it ended up with more business in both China and Japan than here in Taiwan. But as you said, the Bank of Taiwan would later be at the heart of the great financial crisis of uh, 1927. There were lingering debts from the earthquake. The Bank of Taiwan had become the largest holder of earthquake bills, which were loans, I think, for smaller banks. And the Bank of Taiwan was the main creditor for uh, Zaibatsu, a big company, the Suzuki Trading Company, Taiwan-based, but having spread and overreached. It had a cozy relationship with the Bank of Taiwan, too many easy loans, but now it was in deep, deep trouble and it went under. The Bank of Taiwan needed a bailout, but failed to get government approval, and it was forced to close its branch offices on the Japanese mainland and overseas. There were several waves of bank panics around this time. Several dozen closed. Several dozen banks closed. The prime minister was forced to resign. The Bank of Taiwan was uh, eventually rescued by the Bank of Japan, and the Great Depression would come along in a few years. Okay, so that was story one. Our next Taiwan-Tokyo story, we're going to head to the desperate post-war years, and it involves Taiwanese black market sellers, trouble with the police, and an explosion of violence. But we're not talking about the February 28th incident in Taipei in 1947. We're talking about something called the Shibuya Incident, which happened in Tokyo in 1946. Shibuya is a major tourist place today. It's one of those famous photos you see where they're crossing the street, uh, ah, yeah. millions of people you know, moving back and forth through the station. This Shibuya Incident was a violent confrontation which occurred in June 1946 between rival gangs near the Shibuya station in Tokyo. And these rival gangs, on one side, Taiwanese, and on the other, native Japanese Yakuza. But let's set the scene. June 1946, so less than a year after Japan has surrendered unconditionally, World War II, right? Japan is a defeated nation under the control of Allied occupation forces, and this is chiefly American troops. The country is devastated, Tokyo included. Despite, you know, the atomic bombs getting most of the coverage, Tokyo really also was hammered. The fire bombings. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah. In the chaos of the post-war recovery, black markets start opening up, you know, all over Japan. They were meeting a demand, so they were largely tolerated by the authorities. And of course, when you have black markets, there's going to be people fighting for control of these, and these people are often mm, related to gangs and, uh, you know, the underworld. And there was an ethnic component to this as well. About 30% of the people working in those black markets were non-Japanese. Yes, there were a lot of Koreans in Tokyo and a Chinese community, perhaps 30,000 strong. Most of the Chinese were Formosans. The status of these people, of course, is tricky, right? The Koreans and Formosans were formerly imperial subjects, but now there's no empire. So their citizenship reverts to their original country. Some were repatriated, but others decided to stay or were stuck. 
And to this day, Japan has a very large community of uh, people descended from Koreans and also mm -hmm. from Taiwanese. But at this point, back in 1946, the Japanese would refer to both the Koreans and the Japanese in rather nasty terms. Uh, they called them third country people, Daisan Kokujin. Gaijin or Waigoren was the term used for, you know, white people or Caucasians. And it didn't have that same negative sound as third country people, which was understood to mean like you know, third tier, third class citizens or people. You know. Most were unemployed. So, yeah, some of them turned to black market activities and uh, a lot of them in the illegal distilling of liquor. You know, in the despair of post-war Japan, there was a, a strong demand for alcohol, no matter how poor the quality was. Mm-hmm. And of course, where there's a demand, somebody will do the supply. So in June of 1946, fights broke out between Taiwanese gangs and a Japanese Yakuza group, Matsubakai, at this large black market. Right outside the Shibuya police station, over a thousand of these Matsuba Yakuza members fought hundreds of Taiwanese gang members with clubs, metal pipes, and even some small firearms. Seven Taiwanese were killed and 34 wounded. One Japanese policeman was killed and another injured. And the Japanese public were outraged by the chaos. And they blamed the third country people. And, well, they also, to be fair, blamed the incompetence of the Japanese police. More than 40 Formosans were arrested in connection with the incident and brought before the Allied Military Commission. Of course, the Republic of China was one of the victorious allies, and the ROC representatives in Tokyo intervened to fight for Chinese honor. Part of this was having a Chinese diplomat appointed to sit on the military commission uh, looking at the incident and also putting on trial Japanese police officers responsible for opening fire on the Formosans. U.S. General MacArthur, right, he's in charge, basically, of Japan. He's sympathetic to the Chinese nationalists and helped make sure that they were placated. 35 Formosans were convicted and sentenced to hard labor and then deported. I think this Shibuya incident is interesting in that it highlights some of the things we see back in Taiwan at the time. The economic despair, the ethnic tensions, the crime and chaos. And this was very much the case in numerous places around the world. The aftermath of war and regime change are traumatic. Yeah, the horror of war. Terrible, but often a, a gripping narrative. But the horror of after war tends to be untold. Indeed. And with Japan, the story is, you know, Japan is often held up as a post-war success, a phoenix rising from the ashes. And that is true to a large degree. I mean, it would successfully host the Olympic Games in 1964. But, you know, those very first years, wow. Yeah. So Emperor Hirohito, he got on the radio, right, when they surrendered and his people heard his voice for the first time. He warned in his surrender speech, he said Japan and the Japanese would be enduring the unendurable and suffering what is insufferable. And he got it, you know, pretty right. Things were bad. Japan, for example, was ravaged by diseases. 
Conditions, of course, were ideal for it. You've got destruction and chaos, poverty, hunger, and then soldiers bringing disease back from you know, China and elsewhere. Hundreds of thousands of people with cholera, typhoid fever, smallpox, endemic typhus, polio, and encephalitis. Yeah, tuberculosis was actually the deadliest disease. Well over 100,000 deaths a year. 100,000 deaths a year. And it was not until 1951 that total annual deaths dropped below 100,000. You know, tuberculosis is a horrible disease. And for every person who died of tuberculosis, at least several others would have contracted the disease. Yeah, good point. So in those post-war years, the total number of TB cases uh, was probably well over a million. And having tuberculosis was such a social stigma. You're a leper. You're endangering others. And the treatment takes a long time. I think it's six months. Wow. And when people think of the KMT misrule on Formosa in those chaotic early years after World War II, including the massacres in 1947, they sometimes not only tend to imagine an overly idyllic picture of Japan, but they also might imagine that at that time, you know, Europe was being rebuilt under the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan, uh, officially called the European Recovery Program or ERP, an American initiative to provide foreign aid to Western Europe, which included Western Germany. Yes. Like the Allied occupation in Japan, the Marshall Plan is remembered today as having saved a ruined fascist nation and setting it on the path to being a prosperous democracy. But that was not the case in 1946 or even 1947. Exactly. Yeah, the Marshall Plan was enacted in 1948. Before that, there was the Morgenthau Plan. And that was a plan almost the opposite. It sought to deindustrialize post-war Germany and turn it into a, a farming country. The Morgenthau Plan, drawn up in Washington before the end of the war, under the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, pushed by the Americans, resisted by British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. It was named after Henry Morgenthau, secretary to the U.S. Treasury in the Roosevelt administration. But it was actually drafted by a senior official in the U.S. Treasury by the name of Harry Dexter White. And he was probably a Soviet asset. Probably a Soviet asset working in the U.S. administration. Yes. And even if he wasn't, as the son of Lithuanian Jewish immigrants, I can understand him not being that well disposed towards the Germans. Him and lots of other people. The Germans, uh, at least in the view of uh, many others, had caused two world wars in several decades. People are saying, what, what do we do with Germany? Churchill's instinct was to build up Germany so it could pay reparations, but Roosevelt insisted on a harsher plan, um, and you would think that we would have learned from the World War I thing, you know, the, the whole thing, yeah. but no, evidently not. And Germany suffered. It was reduced to a barter economy. People were starving. The infant mortality rate was horrendous. So the plan was abandoned for the Marshall Plan. And the motivation for that really was the fear of Germans turning to communism. Yes, political reasons, moral reasons, and funding. Congress were unhappy about the prospect of having to continually supply aid. They rather helped Germany rebuild. Okay, so we've gone a little off topic from Tokyo and Taiwan. 
with a little detour to Germany and our look at post-war Japanese conditions. But I think, however, it's been a, a useful little bit of information. Yes, always good to have a reminder of how terrible war is, how it casts long, dark shadows. Also, it's good to have some global context to events here and to avoid simple narratives. I don't want to make apologies for the terrible rule here in Taiwan in the late 1940s, but things are never black and white. And, you know, the KMT were fighting a civil war as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when they lost that war, you see mainlanders coming over in that great exodus of about 1.2 million people in 1949. Mm -hmm. You could argue they were part of a new colonial power, a privileged minority ruling over the majority Taiwanese. But with a little bit of um, sympathy, you can also see how they are also victims themselves. Many of these people were poor soldiers just forced into being part of the army. I mean, a person who acted as like a surrogate grandfather for my wife, he was, I think, just 17 and from somewhere in the middle of, of China, thrown onto a truck and then eventually put on a ship and told, you'll be back in mm -hmm. a couple of weeks. And he lived his days out alone. Well, I think he did go back once, uh, finally, when it was lifted, but um, it wasn't mm -hmm. a real positive experience. And like you said, John, we are not trying to minimize the pain of local Taiwanese you know, who had to suffer um, when that change happened. But looking at bird's eye view, you can see that you know, so many people had to suffer during that time, all due to the horrors of war. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's good to always try to take a nuanced and detailed look at history. And it's complicated, but if you if you want to find the truth, well, get as close to the truth as you can. Yes, it's necessary. All right. Well, let's end on a positive little thing here. Uh, I'll do a little plug for the Tokyo Tourism Department. Uh, they're not paying me, but uh, if you I've, get a chance... I've never to... been to Tokyo. I've oh, man. If you get a chance... Just just a, a very interesting place to visit. I recommend a, a trip to Tokyo. Okay. Hi. Thanks for listening Hi. to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye. <laughs>